Hey, y'all, and welcome to this week's Pain in the Pod. Y'all, this week I'm talking with Nikki Wisensee Egan, who did the podcast Chasing Cosby. She's not just the podcast host, okay? She has been covering this case since 2005, since the very first person came forward to accuse Bill Cosby of sexual assault. Of course, these sexual assaults go back to the 60s, but this was the first person brave enough to go up against him. And of course, now, as you know, Bill Cosby's in jail. Over 64 women have come forward, and she has written a book about it, and she's just fascinating. She's a a real journalist, and I think you're going to be very interested to hear what she has to say. So take a listen to my interview with Nikki Wisensee Egan of the podcast Chasing Cosby. And as always, please let me know what you're listening to. Thanks. Hey, y'all, and welcome to Pain in the Pod. Today, I'm so happy to have Nikki Wisensee Egan here with me to talk about her podcast, Chasing Cosby. For those of you who don't know about this podcast, it chronicles Nikki's 15-year journey of being the first and foremost journalist to cover the allegations against Bill Cosby. Nikki has covered this case since 2005, when the first victim, Andrea Constad, accused Cosby of drugging and raping her. Since then, over 60 women have come out with very similar stories of being drugged and sexually assaulted by what I remember to be America's dad, Bill Cosby. Nikki, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me on. So I want to talk about first the basics of the podcast. So like I said, you have been following this case and the victims, the first victim and then subsequent victims since 2005. So for a lot of people that are listening to this, I mean, that's a good chunk of their life. I mean, this is a long time you've been following this case. So give my listeners just sort of a brief timeline of how this has unfolded since you heard about the first case to where we are now. Sure. Um, And let me start out by saying I was a huge Cosby fan when this all started back then. I was you know, I grew up watching Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids on Saturday mornings with my brother. I loved The Cosby Show. It debuted my senior year in high school. In the podcast and in the book, I talk about why it was so important to me. So when this story first broke on the news in 2005, you know, I was shocked. You know, my first reaction, in fact, was not the cause, because that's what we called him in Philly. Ooh. I was I was a crime investigative writer at the Philadelphia Daily News at the time. And I just spent the past year and a half digging into sexual misconduct among the ranks of the Pennsylvania State Police. I'd done an expose on drug facilitated sexual assaults in Philadelphia. And so I was, my boss assigned me to the story. It broke on the local news that Bill Cosby had been accused of drugging and they were saying groping at the time, uh, a woman who used to work at Temple University. So I just, you know, had to put my personal feelings aside and, you know, look in to see what the facts were. And the first thing I wanted to know, because we knew who Cosby was or who we thought he was anyway, but who was this woman and how was she in a position to know him? They weren't releasing her name, which is the norm for sexual assault victims, although that would quickly change in this case where the media began releasing her name and her photo without her consent. Mm. And I had a source at, at Temple University who told me who she was, and they were all really shocked. I mean, they said that you don't say anything about Bill Cosby in Temple without thinking really carefully about it. He was on the board of trustees. He was one of its most famous alum, and he had been a donor for years. <laughs> he was very close with the coach for the women's basketball team, Don Staley, who was Andrea Constant's boss. Andrea was director of operations for the women's basketball team. And they all said at Temple, my source said Andrea had a stellar reputation there. She was very well liked, very well thought of. So they really didn't know what to make of it. 
So that's where it all began. And because I had her name, although we didn't use it because you're not supposed to use the names and um, publish the photos of sexual assault victims without their consent, I was able to do a clip search on her in Nexus and found out she had been one of the top high school basketball players in Canada. She was recruited by 50 to 60 colleges in the U.S. to play for them, and she ultimately chose the University of Arizona. Her goal was ultimately to play for the WNBA, so she went to Italy to play post-college, and when it became clear those dreams weren't going to come true, Dawn Staley came to her and offered her this position at Temple. And that's how she met Cosby. He was at a Temple women's basketball game, and a donor introduced him to Andrea, and then he followed up with a phone call and began asking her questions about the team, and he just began mentoring her and became, you know, like a grandfather figure to her for the next 14, 15 months before this incident happened. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, grandfatherly mentoring stories where, oh, you know, let me help you with your career. Let me, you know, there's a lot of that, which is just so, so gross. So she was assaulted by Cosby in 2004, but we know that all these assaults, now we know through the news that all these assaults go back to like the 60s, the 1960s. I mean, a long, long time. So, so she was, she was assaulted in 2004, but now why did her case not actually go to trial until it was uh, 2015? It was 10 years later? Yeah, that's when he was arrested. So this happened in January 2004. She was drugged. So first, you know, she had dim, she had memories of what happened to her, but she was having a hard time making sense of it, like so many of his victims. I mean, this was not the man she knew. Why would he told her it was herbal medication he gave her because they had, they had talked for many you know, during the course of their friendship how they all they both liked homeopathic remedies, and he knew. Andrea didn't take anything over the counter, nor did she take anything prescription, but she had come over to his house that night. He'd invited her because she was going to quit her job, and she was worried about how to tell her boss, Dawn, who was very close with Cosby. So he invited her over and said, we can talk about it, and she said she was very stressed and very anxious about it. So he offered her these three blue pills he said were herbal medications. And within 20 to 30 minutes, um, she wasn't, he, she tried to get up to stand and she was wobbly. She couldn't walk. And then he laid her down on a couch and she couldn't move. She couldn't speak. She couldn't do anything while he sexually assaulted her. And yes, the, the earliest known victim is from 1965 and she was a 17 year old virgin. She was the, she was the daughter of an agent in LA who was friends with Cosby. So yes, these these span back many years, but they had never, there had only been one that made the media, and that was in 2000 in New York. But other than that, there had never been a whisper of anything like this. So Andrea didn't know what to make sense of it. She is having nightmares throughout the year. She moves back to Canada. She does quit her job because she wants to be a masseuse like her dad. So she goes back to Canada and goes to massage therapy school, and she's living with her parents to save money while she goes to school. And she's having these nightmares every night. Her parents hear her screaming in her sleep at times. And throughout the years, she's having these nightmares. And her mother, they immediately noticed she, their daughter wasn't herself when she came home. So finally, in January 2005, she wakes up from one of these nightmares sobbing. And in these nightmares, by the way, she's dreaming that other women are being sexually assaulted. And it's her fault because she hasn't spoken out. So she calls her mother, who's on her work, and finally tells her what happened to her. You know, Bill Cosby drugged and assaulted me. And then she t goes to the police later that day, and it, the whole process starts to unfold. She first reported it in Canada, not understanding the system, when it should. It ultimately ended up in Cheltenham Township 
uh, Montgomery County in Pennsylvania, outside of Philly, where Bill Cosby's mansion is. And the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office takes it up. And that was Bruce Castor, who was the DA at the time. And from the get-go, it just seemed like he wanted nothing to do with this case. He held a press conference where he basically made a lot of comments indicating he did not seem to find it a very strong case. And um, they had interviewed Mr. Cosby, who was very forthcoming, he said. So within a month before, and all these other women, I got the first exclusive interview with a second accuser, Tamara Green, a California attorney who heard excerpts from Bruce Castor's press conference about the case, and it became very clear to her that he did not believe Andrea Constand. So she decided to come forward with her own story, hoping it would help the DA to believe that Andrea Constand's telling the truth, because this happened to me too, 30 years ago. And after Tamara came forward, she did an exclusive interview with me, and then she did a bunch of national TV interviews, including the Today Show with Matt Lauer, where he skewered her. And um, this prompted another dozen women to come forward. So there were 14 women total accusing Bill Cosby in 2005. But the DA didn't bother to interview most of them and closed the investigation just a month later, while his detectives were still in the middle of their investigation. In fact, they just had a meeting that morning, come up with a list of leads to follow up on. And they found out through the media that Castor had decided not to press charges against Cosby. And that's how Andrea Constan's attorneys found out, too, when the media showed up on their doorstep. And they were going crazy trying to reach Andrea to let her know because the media had been camped out on her doorstep for weeks now because her her identity had been leaked to the media. And the media just started using her photo and name everywhere without her permission. So it took them an hour and a half to locate her, and she was very upset. And it was just a very bad situation all the way around. So Ooh. a couple of weeks later, Andrea filed her lawsuit against Cosby. It was the only recourse she had at this point. And then... Right. In 2014, the scandal explodes again because of the Hannibal Burris video. And as a result, the Associated Press decides who had also backed. And this was what was amazing to me. The media was just would not write negative stories about Bill Cosby for the most part in 2005. And I was I was criticized roundly for the stories I was writing. And the AP had written a lot of stories that, w- that were very pro-Cosby and only shared his point of view or put them in the lead. And in fact, in 2014, they did an on-camera interview with him where they asked him about the allegations, and he's basically pressuring them not to use it. It became, they finally released it two weeks later um, after it was clear the scandal wasn't going away. And you can hear him and see him pressuring them not to use the interview. Is that when he is saying, you're not going to use that or you're not supposed to ask me about that? Right, right. And when he says things like, and I know so-and-so in LA, and I'll just give them a call, and I know that, that, you know, this interview will never air. So, um, but, and they ended up uh, petitioning the court to uh, unseal some of the court documents in Andrea's case, where excerpts of the deposition were attached. And seven months later, the judge um, agrees to unseal those documents with excerpts of the deposition, and in, in which he's admitting to giving quaaludes to women he wanted to have sex with. And that, along with the fact that there are now more, I think, more than 50 women accusing him, um, prompts the DA, the new DA in Montgomery County, to reopen Andrea's case. And he's arrested and charged five months later. Yeah, I was so surprised, you know, when you've seen those those depositions of him and he just says, like, yeah, sure. Like, I gave women quaaludes. I mean, like, big deal. He acts like he went on a date and gave some ordered a bottle of wine, like something like very normal, like she had a Diet Coke. It's no big deal. He just talks about it like, yeah, I gave him quaaludes. I mean, 
what's the big deal? Okay. She wanted to have sex with me, but she wanted to relax. And, you know, it's just, it's so mind boggling that he's talking about it so casually, almost not realizing like, this is what you're in trouble for, you know? Right. I mean, he said he gave drugs to women he wanted to have sex with. Now, you know, he since clarified he didn't mean you know, non-consensual situations. But regardless, it was a shocking, shocking admission from a man who had very publicly said he never used drugs, who had said he only had three sips of a beer once in his teens and didn't like the loss of control, so he didn't drink. He had done, in 1971, he did an album, you know, just say no to, just telling kids to stay away from drugs. He, even though, you know, he had done, had that whole routine he did from the 1960s, um, right. with about the Spanish fly, you know, give it, you know, and he has this whole joke about slipping a drug into a woman's drink or the Spanish fly and how it makes women go wild. So yes, it was, it was very shocking, uh, to the public to hear America's dad talking about this and admitting to affairs. Um, but admitting to giving drugs to women he wanted to have sex with was key to reopening this case. And the reason the judge unsealed it is because, the judge ruled that Cosby had narrowed his right to privacy by being this public moralist because he had gone, you know, he'd written books telling people how to behave. He had, he was in the midst of his, it was called by critics, the blame the poor tour, where he was traveling the country doing um, town halls in inner city communities, telling black people how to behave basically. So when all of this happened, so the judge ruled that all doing all of this narrowed his right to privacy. And that's why he allowed parts of this deposition to be unsealed. Then a clerk mistakenly thought the entire deposition was unsealed and gave it and sold it to a couple of media organizations, but quickly it became unavailable very quickly. But then it's also became an exhibit in another lawsuit. And that's how a lot of people got it too. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come right back. This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, any time you want. Huh. That is pretty smart. Get six free months of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com slash smart for details. Okay, I'm back with Nikki Egan of the podcast Chasing Cosby. Okay, so Nikki, you have written a book by the same name, Chasing Cosby. So why did you decide to do like a companion piece, the podcast, to go with it? Now, I will tell you that for me, uh, hearing the voices of the Women is always a, a very, gives you such a strong feeling because you really think, well, this could have been me. This could have been my sister. This could have been my niece. You know, in a lot of cases, these women were so young. And and then there was a video uh, on the LA Times website regarding your podcast, and it just shows the women, all the faces, one after another, after another, after another. And it's so powerful. So which came first, the podcast or the book? Oh, the book. <laughs> yeah. The book. Um, I got the book deal in May after the conviction, after he okay. was convicted. And then we announced it a few months later. And a, a woman who I used to work with, Alex Zaslow, saw 
me post about the announcement and reached out to me. She works for Herzog and Company to see if I'd be interested in pursuing this for a docu-series um, and or a podcast. And so that that's when those conversations began. We would love to see it as a docu-series, but Hollywood is very reluctant to tackle this subject. I don't know if it's because they're still protecting him or what, but um, that's why you, you also see video as well. And I didn't realize how huge podcasts had gotten in the meantime, you know, in the interim and that they're all the rage, especially in LA where everybody's in their car a lot. So to me, it just seemed like a really great forum for people to be able to hear at least pieces of this story. I mean, it's only six episodes, although we're going to have hopefully a bonus episode or two, and they're 30 minutes long. So it barely scratches the surface of the case. And my book is very much more detailed. My book really goes into to more detail about everything. I located three of the original Jane Doe's from 2005 who'd never spoken before, and they tell their story for the first time. But what it does do is, it, as you say, it gives people an opportunity to hear from the survivors themselves. And I, I've been amazed at what a powerful um you know, modem uh, it is, venue it is, or modem, what am I trying to say? Mode of communication. Yeah, mode of communication. (laughs) It is to hear this, um, to just hear their voices. Because so many times when they go on TV or, you know, you'll see nasty comments from viewers like, oh, they're so old or they're lying. You know, they just, they just start denigrating their appearance. The women are castigated if they're, they're not pretty enough, they're too old, they're this, they're that. But if you just listen to their voices you hear the emotion. It, it was so much more powerful than even I thought it would be just to hear them tell their stories. And that's what I, I think it's so important. And then you can decide for yourself or you can seek out more information because like, as I said, we barely scratch the surface of the case with the podcast. We have one more episode coming up and it, um, you know we don't have any time to get into all the victim impact statements and all that was giving. There's, there's a lot in there. That is great. It is a fantastic podcast, and I'm very proud of it. But it could have easily been, you know, 10, 20 episodes because there is just a lot to unpack with this case. Oh, absolutely. I mean, each victim has their own individual story. And it's interesting that they're so, the stories are similar to each other. But I will tell you that it's crazy to me how he got away with it for so many decades because. It seems to me that it was sort of an open secret in the comedy world. And, you know, you've heard comedians now just say, oh, everybody knew that he did that. And yet he was so hard on other comics for using any kind of blue humor or bad language or being vulgar. He was definitely very hard on the black community. And I could very, very clearly remember him going on Oprah and, you know, saying, you know, this is what's wrong with the the black community and it's uh, uh, too many baby daddies and you know, all these, he had all this criticism when it seems to be a very open secret that he was doing all this with all these women. I mean, what kind of personality trait is it that makes somebody really bad mouth what people are doing, but they're doing it themselves? Is it just like pure narcissism? Is it delusion? A sociopath. I mean, I don't. Sociopath. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I don't think that he, in his mind, I don't think he thought he was doing anything wrong. And again, you won't hear a lot of this in the podcast about the enablers, but a lot of it is in my book because he had many, many enablers along the way. He had um, his own people who worked for him, his agents at William Morris who paid these women off um, when need be or created these educational trusts. I was amazed when I was researching the book to discover how many people in Hollywood knew. You know, as you said. 
said, and I put a lot of that in the book, the media was very culpable because the media just didn't want to lose favor with him. So they did never pursued. They had heard for years about this, but nobody ever pursued it. And even when it did explode in 2005, they backed off the story just so they could get inside these town halls he was having. Because as a member of the media, you had to be invited into them. And they didn't want to lose access to Cosby. It's where I first heard the phrase trading up, which was giving up one story to get a better one. Because I was going on a lot of these national TV shows and the bookers were telling me they were getting pressure from Cosby not to have me on. And that's where I heard the phrase trading up. You know, pretty soon I wasn't on those shows anymore. You know, if you want to get Bill Cosby, you don't have her, her on. Right. And ABC didn't really cover the Cosby scandal at the time, except for one story saying that he said it was consensual what happened between he and Andrea. Lo and behold, three months later, Nightline is inside one of his town halls. They get an exclusive sit down interview with him. I mean, it was like I was it was mind boggling to me. Um, the, The National Enquirer got the first print interview with him because they traded up um, and got rid of an interview they had with another accuser, Beth Farrier. They went to him with it and Cosby said, all right, don't run her story and run my, and I'll give you an exclusive interview. So that happened. And he has always been able to control the media. And that is the scariest part of this whole story when you realize the power celebrities have to get away with bad deeds because the media will help cover up for them. The media doesn't want to go up against them with their deep pockets and endless resources. And also, you know, they want access to that celebrity. Or if they have the same representative as other celebrities, they don't want to lose access to those celebrities. So um, that was a big part of who enabled him as well was the media. You know, it is so, so, so similar to the Harvey Weinstein situation because I've read Ronan Farrow's book and listened to his podcast as well. And it's so similar in that nobody wanted to say anything because nobody wanted to go against Harvey Weinstein because it's not just him as the person. It's every uh, star or starlet associated with Miramax or have been in all his Oscar winning movies. And with one call from Harvey Weinstein, it's exactly what you're saying. Like, okay, well, this person's interview is canceled because Harvey's going to give us Gwyneth Paltrow or, you know, or something else. And it's the exact same story. Harvey didn't, uh, you know, as far as we know, didn't drug anybody, but it was the same sort of using that power. And, uh, same thing. I think Matt Lauer, you know, talked to a, a couple of Harvey Weinstein uh, victims and same thing was skewering them. You know, of course, now we know why. But I also find it similar to and just go with me on this a little bit. The Michael Jackson situation, because of the grooming of not only the victim, but also the families, because Michael Jackson did a lot of that Um with his alleged victims, he was grooming the families, taking them on these amazing European vacations and trips just so he could have access to the little boy, right? And it's so similar to what Bill Cosby was doing and that, um, and you see it in the Andrea Constad case that calling the mom and saying, you know, flat out, like, I'll pay for whatever uh, she wants to do. That was, was that Andrea that he did that with? But yeah, yeah, he did it when he offered after she went to police, offering her an educational trust. Um, right. 
Right. So, yeah, but let me add, too, that Ronan Farrow, too, was one of the journalists who backed off the Cosby story. And he actually wrote a mea culpa. He was among several journalists that wrote mea culpas after the scandal exploded again in 2014. Because he, Ooh. yeah, and he wrote something in May 2015 where he writes about how NBC told him not to ask the Cosby biographer about the sexual assault scandals. And, you know, he managed to squeeze in one question toward the end. But he said he was ashamed of that interview and he should have asked tougher questions. So maybe that is another reason he went so aggressive after Harvey Weinstein, he just was not going to let it happen again because he really did, you know, experience a lot of backlash. Um, yeah, Hillary Clinton was supposed to do an interview with him for his foreign policy book. And all of a sudden she cancels her interview because she gets a lot of money from Harvey Weinstein. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, to, to his credit, he, like I said, he more than made up for it. But that's the kind of power that, you know, it can make a Ronan Farrow back off the story. <laughs> that's the kind right. most people have never heard. And I always say this. I think this is a tougher story in so many ways because most people people are more willing to believe a Harvey Weinstein is guilty of something like this because they had no idea who he was before the scandal broke. Um, same thing with Jeffrey Epstein. But Bill Cosby, people right. thought and they know who he, he was or still believe that. And some people just still absolutely refuse to believe it. And the drugs, to me, the drugging adds this whole other level of, you know, nefariousness to the crime because, in my view, drugging someone to have sexually assault them is premeditated rape. And it's also the perfect crime because it wipes away the person's resistance. It wipes away their ability to speak or move. And it wipes away their memory in most cases. And even if they wake up the next day and want to go to the hospital and get their the blood tested, most of these drugs are out of their system within a few hours. Ooh. So there are no signs of anything other than consensual sex. And if you are, and Cosby chose his victims very carefully. He did not you know, choose women of equal stature to him. He chose like young, aspiring teenage girls or girls barely out of their 20s who were aspiring models or starlets or Andrea. She was a little older, but she's very naive and she's very far away from her home and her family and her friends. So he chose them very carefully as well. And yes, he had these arrangements with some modeling agencies where he would call them up and say, I want to mentor so-and-so. And then the agent will call their client and go, Bill Cosby wants to mentor you. And then he would call them and then and he would call their parents and he would, he would groom them. He would groom their parents, create this relationship of trust and then invite her somewhere. And then he'd get in an environment he controlled and he would drug and sexually assault them. And then he would abandon them or and try to destroy them and destroy their careers. It's so vast, this case that you've covered for all these years. It's so vast. That's why you're such, you know, the perfect person to do the book and everything because, you know, you've been covering it since day one. And, you know, he had so many staunch supporters like Felicia Rashad, of course, Mrs. Cosby, and Whoopi Goldberg. I know now, I know Whoopi Goldberg retracted her support and said, you know, I believe the victims. But I cannot recall what Felicia Rashad has said since he's been like convicted and, you know, over 60 women have come out. She said zilch. And I guarantee you, because I was with a celebrity magazine for 12 years, that any interview she's doing, her publicist is telling them she will not answer questions about Bill Cosby. Because that's what people don't realize. We are a celebrity worshiping culture in the U.S. People don't realize how carefully cultivated their images are. Even these interviews they do, there are parameters set up in advance. Like you told the reporter is told, you can't ask this, this or this question. And if you do, we'll never talk to you again. So that's the type of power that celebrities have. So she has said nothing in, in a few years. I mean, she made those comments initially. And then, you know, Rudy from The Cosby Show showed up at the first trial. Supposedly, mm -hmm. Felicia Rashad was going to show up, but she never did show up. She was doing a Broadway play. And I think at that point, 
She was probably more trying to distance herself from it. So she hasn't said anything in years. You know, it's it's similar to like the R. Kelly case when people were showing up there at his trials and one girl showed up and ended up being another one of his victims. You know, it's, it's, it is right. It is a celebrity worshiping culture in that it's so hard. It was so hard for all these years for people to believe that about Michael Jackson, because he seemed so childlike and innocent. And it's like, oh, he had this terrible childhood because his parents forced him to be this child star. And all that may be true, but it doesn't take away the fact that, you know, what he allegedly what he turned into this, you know, pedophile that was grooming these families. And we just see more and more things coming out. And I guess, you know, as these things come out with somebody like America's dad, Bill Cosby and all that, it's more and more believable, I guess. It's 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 tragic that it took so long. But now has his wife, Camille, ever made any statement? I know at the beginning, for sure, she was totally behind him and said that, you know, this was a railroading and not true. But I, I couldn't, when I looked, I couldn't find anything that she had said in the last few years. Well, when you say said, she releases statements. <laughs> no, right. she has had a lot to say. In fact, she just, he just put out another statement on her behalf about, you know, Snoop Dogg recently uh, with the whole Gail King making the, asking the Kobe Bryant's friend about the rape. Snoop Dogg put out a comment because he put free Bill Cosby out when he was, you know, lashing out at Gail for asking that question. So um, Camille recently just put out a statement thanking him. And, you know, of course, he's so innocent. And thank you, Snoop Dogg, for the free Bill Cosby thing. So, you know, this this continues to happen. They it, they trot her out every so often to make a statement on Cosby's behalf, even though she's never visited him in prison. He says it's because he doesn't want her to. I find that very hard to believe. Um, but you know, their relationship is a little bit of a mystery, I think. Now, he's been in prison now a couple of years, but how many years will he, is he supposed to be in prison total? His sentence was three to 10 years, which means he is eligible for parole at three years. Um, and they start doing that process at two and a half. But in order to make parole, there's a couple of things you have to first, ha- the victims get to weigh in. And as to whether they think the perpetrator should be released. And second, you usually have to show remorse or some accountability. And right. Bill Cosby did that interview in December where he basically said, I'm, I don't have anything to be remorseful for, for. I did nothing wrong. This was consensual. So if I have to serve my whole sentence, so be it. And he's not, he's, he was designated a sexually violent predator through a psychological assessment. And he's Gosh. refusing to go to the classes you're supposed to be. The taking in prison for being a sex offender. So um, he's saying he's not going to take those classes because he did nothing wrong. And again, you can't be released without completing those classes. So he's saying he's wow. prepared to serve the whole sentence, even as he's appealing the sentence. He just filed another appeal. His first got rejected. And it, it's kind of interesting because Jerry Sandusky appealed his sentencing as well and won. It took seven years, but he won it. And then he just had his sentencing, his resentencing in December. And he got the same sentence, (laughs) which was kind of funny. So, yeah, it took him seven years to finally get the decision. And then, you know, yes, you need a sentence. And then he gets the same one. So even if by some stretch he he won one of these appeals, it doesn't mean that he's going free anytime soon. No. And how old is he now? He's 82. Okay. You know, like you were saying about growing up with it, I grew up watching Fat Albert cartoons, you know, in the morning. Loved it. And... Of course, loved watching the Cosby Show as well, and so I always in my mind's like, oh, he's about my dad's age because my dad, I think, is uh, I think my dad's eighty three, and so I, that's why I was wondering. I was like, he is exactly 
my dad's age. Yeah, he's my, my dad's 75. So he's, you know, a few years older than mine. And but I, I mean, he that's how I looked at him. The You know, he was the father we wished Cliff Huxtable, not Bill Cosby, was the father we, we all wished we had. You know, he was just the perfect father. And, you know, there's this disconnect because you really think it's based on his life. So, you know, that's that's got to be him. But all the research I've done and everything I've seen is he, you know, he may have been America's dad, but I don't think he was the best dad to his own children. Right. I remember he had, I think, if I recall correctly, just from, you know, back in the days when the show first came out and everything, he, in real life, he had, what, three daughters and one son? Is that right? Four daughters and one son. Four daughters and one son. And then his son, of course, was tragically uh, killed. And I remember, wasn't his son, like, changing a tire on the side of the road and got shot? Yes. Yes. That's terrible. But, you know, you could say, okay, well, this is a horrible tragedy. Maybe that... uh, put him over the edge, but no, he had been doing all these crimes way before that. Right. And it's interesting because I, in my, the prologue to my book, I write about watching that kind of the famous episode where Theo um, and the Cosby show is diagnosed with dyslexia. And that is also paralleled with Ennis, Cosby's son. I mean, that's uh-huh. the same thing happened. And Vanessa says to Cliff afterwards, see, remember you kept calling him lazy? What He wasn't lazy. And it's done in a very jo- jovial, typical Cosby show manner. But you know that that came from truth, and who knows the way Cosby treated his own son because calling him lazy and all these things when it turned out he was dyslexic. So, as I said, I think there's a lot of things that point to him not being the best father to his own children. None of his kids showed up at either trial. Um, Camille only showed up at defense closing arguments for both of them, and then she left. And none of them have visited him in prison. So, I mean, I covered the Jerry Sandusky trial parts of it, and his kids were there. You know, his wife was there. Yeah. I am very fascinated by uh, Camille and that whole, you know, what is the reason you're going to stay with somebody? Let's just let's just go on the fact that maybe he wasn't the greatest dad. Okay, just staying with a person that's just admitting to having just hundreds of affairs, you know, just like, oh, yeah, I had sex with all these women, blah, blah, blah. Let's just say at the base that that's what it is, you know, so they have some sort of arrangement. um, And I guess it worked until, you know. Now he's in jail, so it doesn't. I don't know. That's uh, mind-boggling to me. No, I mean, financially, look, he's always been the breadwinner, and it could be a purely financial situation. Like, you know, they have three houses, first of all. And even if that place where she spends most of her time in Massachusetts is, I think, 100 acres or something. So they, even when they're there together, they could each have their own house on that type of property and not be able to see each other. So what's the benefit to divorcing when you lose money, right? Because he, especially along the way, she's making no money. He's the gazillionaire, you know? So who knows what they're, she might lose everything. I mean, he was already successful when they got married. Um, who knows what oh. the terms are could be. I don't even know if they, I assume they had prenups back then. There's another podcast I love. I listen to Real Crime Profile where they talk a lot about coercive control. You know, I don't know if that's a factor because it's just odd to me that she rarely does interviews. And when she does, he's usually sitting by her side. And then, you know, she doesn't say much and then he'll talk. So he's all about control. He has to be in utter and complete control in every situation. So I cannot imagine that he's not in control in that situation. Right. You know, it, it could be that. I mean, she could also be have blinders on and think, oh, yes, he cheated. But, you know, that's between he and I and it's nobody else's business. Um, she could just find herself believing that or she's still trying to preserve his legacy. You know, he did do a lot of good, but it always it always 
cracks me up when people say, yes, but he did so much good. I'm thinking, but if a serial killer donated (laughs) millions and millions and millions (laughs) to colleges and then he's caught and arrested, would you be saying that? Oh, but he did so much good. He donated all these millions of dollars. You know, Jerry Sandusky had a charity for at-risk kids for like 20, 30 years. He didn't sexually abuse all of them. He helped a lot of at-risk kids over the years. Does that mean we should, you know, look past what he was convicted of? But with Bill Cosby, right. we're supposed to. Well, he did all this good for so many years. I said, well, would you say that about a serial killer? <laughs> That's a great point. Okay, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. According to studies, less than 13% of all inventors who hold a U.S. patent are women. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of their white counterparts. But we can fix that by increasing participation in innovation and patenting by underrepresented groups. It would quadruple the number of American inventors and increase annual GDP by almost $1 trillion. Invent Together is a coalition of organizations, companies, universities, and concerned citizens committed to ensuring that everyone has the opportunity to invent and patent. Because the more diverse the American patent system gets, the stronger and more successful our nation will become. What can you do to help diverse inventors patent and unleash economic opportunity? Find out at inventtogether.org. Learn more and take action today. Okay, I'm back with Nikki Wisesee Egan of the podcast Chasing Cosby. So I'm going to read this thing that you wrote. This is quote, I often find myself wondering why the Cosby case wasn't enough to ignite a movement like Me Too, which erupted two years after Cosby's arrest. Is it because, unlike in the Weinstein case, none of the victims were celebrities? Are we more likely to believe a sexual assault survivor if they are famous? And is the reverse true? Are we less likely to believe someone is guilty because they are a celebrity? And that's the reason I wanted to do this podcast and why I wrote my book. When you hear the voices of Cosby's accusers, a chorus of voices of women who didn't know each other, describing similar experiences and similar fears, it changes your view and it changed mine. And that's what I really want my listeners to know going into listening to Chasing Cosby, that hearing these women's voices, they come from all different walks of life. They, they're not all young and blonde, or they're not all young African-American women, or none of them are the same. So he was not even discerning. It was just whatever caught his eye or what he, he felt like someone he could control in that way. And that's what I really want people to, to get from this podcast is just listen to the voices of these women. And so do you feel like after writing this book and doing the podcast that you can put this to rest in your mind or will it's the, the voices of these women are going to stick with you forever? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, another reason I stuck with it, and I hate to say this, but it's just the truth, is I the media was very pro-Cosby in 2005, and I was attacked over and over by the media for my stories, and the DA was threatening to have me arrested. But then in 2014, they all jumped on the anti-Cosby bandwagon, and I, I knew they were just as likely to jump off. And I saw it start to happen in the second trial with some of the media that was there. And I just, I just really felt like someone needs to kind of stand up for these survivors and, you know, be consistent because the media will will turn on you in a second. Unfortunately, it's just nature of the way the business is. And I just didn't want these women to be forgotten. And they were criticized so much 
you know, for people saying, oh, they're just out for money. And there's still like, there's still so many people, I think, that believe Cosby. You know, Ronan Farrow's book is a bestseller, which is great. It's a fabulous book. I loved it. You know, mine never hit the bestseller list because I just don't think people want to believe it. They still don't want to believe it. And so I'm going to stand here and sit here and do whatever project that's related to this that comes my way so that people don't forget this and don't forget these survivors. And so this just doesn't fade away into history. I mean, 64 women. I mean, 64 women is a lot of women. And you imagine there are probably quite a few that have not come forward as well. Exactly. I mean, they women stopped coming forward because Cosby started suing them for defamation. Oh, and God. so I think there are hundreds, if not thousands, of his victims out there. In fact, when the second trial happened, Linda Carter, Wonder Woman, did this interview where she basically hinted very strongly that he had done something similar to her or tried to, you know, way back before she was famous. Um, so there's, there's someone right there. Some of the, one of the Playboy, PJ Mastin said she had 12 to 16 former bu- Playboy bunnies come to her and say Cosby had done it to her after she came forward. She was a bunny mother, not a bunny. And um, other women have told me they know of other women who have not come forward. So, you know, people don't realize that it is not an easy thing to decide to come forward with an allegation like this against America's dad. I mean, and people, you know, they get criticized for, oh, they just want their 15 minutes of fame. Who wants to be famous for being raped? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Who wants to be famous for somebody giving them a drink, they have one sip, they pass out, and they wake up and somebody's on top of them raping them? Like, I mean, who wants to be famous for that? That's horrible. Right. Right. Horrible. Well, okay. Now, speaking about um, taking a little bit of a turn here, speaking of podcasts, you were saying before this, like you didn't quite realize how big podcasts were. And so now are you a podcast listener? Yes, yes, I'm definitely it's really, you know, it's really gotten me very into podcasts myself, because I I just, you know, I've tried a lot of them. And there, there are certain ones I just kind of stick with because there's certain things I look for. Tell me what you're listening to. Tell me which ones. Um, I love Real Crime Profile, which I mentioned earlier. Um, There's a woman I wrote a story about who has breast cancer, who's stage four breast cancer. Now she and her friend who are both terminally ill started one called Making the Breast of It, which is, Uh yeah, it's kind of funny. It's chit chatty female, but it's also what it's like, you know, she's in her late thirties and she found out, you know, she has stage four breast cancer and she's doing a podcast with a a wife and a mother who's the same one. Um, I've been listening to Ronan's podcast. And so I, you know, I work from home, so I don't have podcasts on a lot. It's not like I'm commuting. (laughs) So yeah, these are the ones that uh, Dirty John I listened to when I was getting ready because the people doing mine, of course, did Dirty John. I tried. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. They did Dirty John and they did Man in the Window and mm-hmm. um, they just did Detective Trap. So I listened to that. I want to, Brene Brown's going to be starting one next month. I'm looking forward to hearing that one. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people talk about that. I'm not like a big uh, Brene Brown follower, but I know that that's going to be a big deal in the podcasting world. Right. So there's, you know, and every time I do an interview, like with yours, you know, I find new ones to try out. So, (laughs) so yeah, so those are the ones. Well, that's awesome. And I have to tell you that I'm so impressed. You know, I just, you know, listened to the podcast. Someone recommended it to me and that's how I find a lot of things. And someone recommended it to me in a Facebook group. Have you guys seen this? And the cover art is what struck me initially because it is the famous Cosby sweater, but with a hand unraveling it. Yeah. And whoever did that cover art, that's genius. The LA Times. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in fact, genius. I got to meet the people who did it when I was there and I was just telling them how much everybody loved it. It it really is. It really is. They they've just 
done a fabulous job. And Herzog and Company did the production of this. And they were with me when we, I, I, I interviewed 35 people over 11 days in, in Philly and LA. And, you know, they, what I loved about the way they wanted to do this production is they didn't want to do anything over the phone. They flew everybody in or we, you know, that's why we did one in Philly to get like the local people, put them up in hotels, you know, just took very good care of them. You know, here they, they didn't just fly them in and out unless they wanted it like that. They knew there might be some, it's hard for these survivors still to talk about it. So they, they'd come in the day before, do their interviews and wouldn't have to leave till the next day if they wanted. And they paid for everything. And I just, I really appreciated that they just really, that's why it's such a quality production. They, you know, they, they really took care of these people and it isn't easy for them. And it's hard to see them still breaking down. And, you know, I'm glad we have some videos out on it and who knows, maybe someday someone will be brave enough to do a docu-series based on this because you know we've tried and Hollywood I don't I think in a lot of ways they're still protecting him wow so yeah I would love to see a a, I love a good documentary and I would love to see a documentary about all your work and all the time and years that you uh, spent on this and all the uh, victims and I think that would be very eye-opening and so so we'll we'll put it out in the universe we'll put it out in the universe (laughs) But I tell you what, I've enjoyed talking to you because I, like I said, when I first just looked at the podcast itself, and then as I was preparing to talk with you, I went and read a ton of LA Times articles and got to see some videos and things that were out there. And I was like, wow. And, and you're right, just like putting the voices with it is really, is really astounding. So this podcast is is so well done. And I really would recommend anybody, uh, if you're interested in this and the, and the, the whole thing, the Michael Jackson, the R. Kelly, the Weinstein, uh, the Bill Cosby, it, it's its just part of a bigger problem. And listening to your podcast really opened my eyes to a lot of it. And same with uh, Ronan's. So thank you very much for the work that you did on it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for your kind words. Yeah. Okay. And uh, everybody, uh, that's it for Pain in the Pod this week. Thanks for listening. Oh, uh, one last thing, Nikki. I'm sorry. Tell people where they can find out more uh, about Chasing Cosby. I should have said that first. Oh, okay. You can go to my website, NicoleWeisenCEgan.com, NikkiEgan.com. You can listen to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, my book, you can buy wherever you buy books, whether it's Amazon, your local bookstore, Barnes & Noble. If they don't have it in there, they can order it for you. And also, we'll, we'll be having an event in LA um, the evening of February 26th with some of the survivors, including Andrea Constand from wow. Chasing Cosby, that is going to be open to the public. And we'll have the details about that on my website. And will that uh, turn into a podcast episode? Yes, think? that will be a, a bonus episode. Okay, good. Because I can't fly to LA, but I would still like to hear it. Yeah, that, that's why I love that they're you know doing this and they decided to host this event and we'll have sexual assault expert there and then I'll be doing a little bit. And I don't like to make the focus on me. I want it to be about the survivors. But I do think, you know, people need to understand what the media goes through trying to get these stories out because, you know, it's not easy. <laughs> no, not easy. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. And um, thanks for listening this week, everybody. And I'll talk to you next week.